It's a privilege to introduce my brother in Christ and friend Richard Reeves this morning. Richard and his wife Rachel are from Memphis originally and ended up planting churches in Olive Branch and then out in Colorado. But the Lord called them back here, and the Lord called them back here for a special purpose, to help Second Press plant a church in downtown. It would be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and really multi-socioeconomic church. And they have been working at that for about a year now, and the Lord is blessing them. And it is a privilege uh, to uh, have Richard come on up, someone who has helped me understand greatly God's heart for our body of Christ being one across all boundaries. And uh, so, Richard, come on up. It's great to have you here this morning. Good morning. It is good to be back. Um, turn to Ecclesiastes 7 and Romans 5, and if you can put a napkin or something or uh, use that copy of the hymn, uh, we, I promise you we will get to those passages, and I'm going to lead us into that. Um, before I pray, I do just want to give just a brief update on the church plant. Uh, I think it's been uh, almost exactly a year since I was at Amen, and uh, God has been doing a lot. Uh, he's been gathering uh, a group of individuals, uh, very diverse. Um, if you know downtown well, you know that um, on the edge of downtown is the third poorest zip code in the country, 38126. And, um, but then 38103 and 38105, you have a median income of around $75,000. Uh, so you have a, a stark contrast um, downtown. And what we are looking to do is to plant a church where um, both the poorest of the poor and, uh, and the wealthy, and there's not really a middle class, but you know, middle to upper class come together uh, around the person of Christ and do life together um, and, and learn from one another. And I'm seeing God raise up um, a number of leaders in both of those diverse, or all of those diverse groups, and that's exciting to see. Um, and I think we, we just started a couple of Bible studies. Uh, we meet at Advance Memphis on Vance Avenue on Wednesdays at noon, and then on Thursdays, actually today, at 88 Union, um, we're, we're reaching out to the business district, and we're kind of working backwards. If worship is out here, uh, we're back here, and we're saying, let's do the work of the church uh, before we are a public church, if you will. And so we said, what would we like to do long-term in Memphis? And one thing would be to be a resource to the downtown area during the day uh, because there are probably 80,000 people in downtown during the day and about 35,000 that live downtown. Uh, so we have a huge opportunity to impact the city of Memphis with the gospel not just with a downtown church for downtown people, uh, but a downtown church for downtown people that are reaching into uh, the downtown business community during the week. Um, so if you work downtown, live downtown, we'd love to have you at either one of those studies, and you can talk to me afterwards. But uh, we're excited. I think we're, we're about to see many more public um, opportunities, if you will, uh, for people downtown. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to look at the whole idea that my spiritual life will save me, or will it? <laughs> uh, 
And uh, before we look at that, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one that blesses the seed of your word. Um, and all we must do is, is throw it out there. Uh, we thank you that it never dies in the ground, um, but it indeed uh, bears fruit as your spirit uh, produces that fruit. And so we pray this morning that you would take um, our uh, tired uh, bodies and um, you would sow deeply the gospel of truth, that you would do the work of a surgeon, uh, precisely um, cutting into us uh, the cancer that uh, so resides in our hearts and minds, and that you would lead us to the one who is life, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be renewed, uh, may be converted, uh, that we might be alive in him today, full of faith, full of wonder, uh, full of love, in light of his love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was asked um, several years ago when we were doing ministry in Olive Branch to say the prayer at um, a DeSoto County Republican dinner. And it was just prior to Haley Barber announcing his candidacy for governorship. Uh, it was one of those events where everybody knew he was going to, but he was being very evasive, uh, probably to create the excitement that was present at that event um, that night. And I was asked to come and pray, to give the blessing for this event. And I was sitting on the podium one seat over from Haley Barber. He gave his speech at the right time and uh, received a number of uh, standing ovations, and he finished his speech, and everyone was standing. And in between uh, Mr. Barber and myself was the president of uh, the Mississippi State Republican Party. And Haley Barber whispered in the midst of all of this applause, he whispered under his breath, was that okay? <laughs> and what he was saying, what he was asking is the question we all ask from as early as we can remember uh, to as far as we live, do I measure up? How you answer that question determines whose you are. Does that make sense? I mean, how you answer the most basic question, do I measure up, defines where your faith lies. And because we live in the Bible Belt, I did ministry out in Colorado for five years. It is not the Bible Belt. <laughs> it is the place people go to escape the Bible Belt. I'll never forget my assistant pastor moved in to his neighborhood, and the first person to come over was from Jackson, Mississippi. But they were a, they, they were a household of witches, three women living together, and they were Wiccans. And... I'll never forget that phone call, my assistant pastor saying, I don't know about this, Richard, <laughs> you know, I have three witches living next door and uh, offering to babysit my children whenever I <laughs> need some help. And uh, I said, it's okay, you know, you just have to develop a relationship and, and be in this for the long haul and see what God does. Uh, but we're in the Bible Belt. If you are a witch in the Bible Belt, you don't say it, you don't proclaim it. You, there's not that freedom because 
we are Christian or are we? Um, that's really the question. The danger, uh, the blessing is obvious of, of being in the Bible Belt. We have the Word of God proclaimed. Um, we do not lack opportunity like this morning um, to hear the Word of God, to, to see Jesus lifted up publicly, okay? But the problem with that is that when we live in a culture like uh, the Bible Belt, if you will, or the South, our hearts, because they are deceitful above all things, says Jeremiah, is we have the tendency to mistake the things of God with a personal relationship with God, an ongoing personal relationship with God. And I don't just, I'm not just talking to the one who may think he's a Christian, but he's not because he's around the things of God, but he, his heart is not deeply ingrained in God. But I'm speaking really to us, to those of us that profess faith in Christ, but somewhere along the way, we lose that heart love for the one who loves us. Well, let me kind of weave that into my story. I was converted as a ninth grader in high school. And uh, I came from a broken home, and the, the gospel message of acceptance with God through the person of Christ was glorious to me because the Holy Spirit made it glorious to me, obviously. My heart was opened, and I embraced Christ through faith, and I walked into a room going one way and came out of the room going another way. It was a radical conversion uh, for me personally. But here's what happened. I was in a Presbyterian church, and I loved the church, okay? Um, but what happened was, it's interesting, because I can relate to this. In a Presbyterian church, not a lot of public conversions happen, okay? As Presbyterians, we kind of ease into it, maybe intellectually. Um, and there's never this resounding celebration. Like in a Baptist church, if someone comes to faith in Christ, I mean, you know, the music's playing, you're walking down front, you're in the water before you know it. It's a public event. But in the Presbyterian church, you know, it, it's all, it's reserved, it's calculated, you know, now you need to do this kind of, kind of mentality. Um, and so as a 15-year-old, being converted and being so excited, um, those around me were encouraging me to, to begin reading different things. And uh, before I knew it, I was reading. I was so excited about the attention I was getting. And, you know, I began to see, wow, I mean, not only do I have this newfound faith, but I have this community. I mean, adults are even recognizing me, encouraging me. I was getting this affirmation that subtly I began to kind of latch on to. And before I knew it, I was reading things like Lorraine Bettner's Predestination. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> As a 15-year-old, great book, unbelievable work, probably the defining work on the topic of predestination in my lifetime at least. But what that did to me was it began to, in my heart, replace the person of Christ and his grace and his mercy as my wonder. And this newfound systematic theology became 
my wonder and the thing I press my life into to feel good before God and before others. I became a leader. I see David uh, sitting out here. I started an FCA uh, with David Sitton, hard to believe, years ago at Christian Brothers High School. I became a leader in my youth group, really was the leader. We didn't have much of a youth group at, at my church and became the leader. I was teaching. Whoa, I don't even want to know what I was teaching at 15 and 16, <laughs> newly converted. I, uh, you know, I know God's grace is deep enough for that. But, um, but what I saw in my heart, the fruit of all of that began to be a deep self-righteousness and relationally just a very critical attitude. I'll never forget a car wash we had at our church, and I was in charge of this youth car wash. And, I mean, I was pouring my life into, you know, the ministry, if you will, the Christian life. And so part of that was, as a leader, was trying to get the other youth group members to kind of get in line and to be as passionate as I was, you know, and so we had this car wash, and I'll never forget at the end, I just wanted to just kill somebody because the, all they wanted to do was have a, a water fight. And here I am, I mean, I'm a true believer, you know. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and we're going to wash these cars, you know. And what I saw was all of, all of a sudden this divide in my relationships. And even with my parents who were kind of watching this thing go on, you know, wondering what's happening, but my conversion was not moving me toward people. It was moving me deeper into me and away from people. I really believe I was potentially worse in those moments <laughs> than I was before I was a Christian. I mean, have you ever met somebody where their religious experience, if you will, their newfound faith made them worse, more obnoxious to be around after than before. The words of Jesus comes to mind. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You see, our hearts are always looking for something to lean into in addition to Jesus. John Newton, who wrote the great hymn Amazing Grace, he used to counsel, uh, he was a pastor. Most of us just know him as the one who wrote Amazing Grace, but he was a pastor. And he would meet with um, young couples thinking about getting married or having uh, recently been married, and this is what he would tell them. Newton said this, you may think your biggest problem, spiritually speaking, is the prospect of a bad marriage. Every bit as big a spiritual danger is the prospect of a good marriage. Permit me to say to both of you, in regard to marriage, beware of idolatry. I have found that my choicest mercies have been the occasion of drawing out the evils of my heart and causing me to walk heavily and in darkness because the old leaven, a tendency toward the covenant of works, still cleaves to me. What Newton was saying was, 
it's not just a bad marriage. It's not just, you know, a husband who, who um, sees another woman and chases after her. That, that's not your biggest fear. Your biggest fear, spiritually speaking, may be the prospect of a good marriage because your heart always wants to go back to the covenant of works, that system in which I do good and God does good to me. I put in my time and God gives me his time. It's this contractual agreement. And Newton says that's not the gospel. And your goodness can make you twice as much a son of hell, just as much as your pleasure-seeking, hedonistic, narcissistic tendencies. We all want a religion. We all want a performance, a plan that puts us in right relationship with God that depends on our effort, our culture, our personality, and our way. I'm planning a church in downtown, and you know, some have asked me, where does this vision come from to, to see the poorest of the poor and the middle class and wealthy, African-American and white, come together? And it's, it's my contention that when the gospel is heard anew and Jesus is truly the hero and the binding factor of a community, then we are blinded by and to what a person makes, what his culture is, because that's not our righteousness anymore. And we all naturally get comfort and righteousness out of our cultural ways, the way things have always been done. And it's deep. And it's easy to replace cultural superiority with Jesus Christ. It's easy to look to that and to press our lives deeper into that. How we do worship, how we speak, job performance, whether you have a job, whether you're looking for a job, as one's righteous standing before God rather than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, God hates pride and he's opposed to the proud. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud. And let's talk a little bit about that. Um, and to do that, I want to go to uh, Luke 15 and the story there. And I'm just going to tell you. You don't have to turn there. Uh, we're all aware of the, the parable that Jesus told of the two lost sons. Uh, we always think of the lost son, but Jesus starts the story by saying there was a man who had two sons. And we're all very familiar with the first son. He's the younger brother who went to the father and said, may I please have my share of the inheritance? And the father, just in unbelievable fashion, allows him to have that, <laughs> gives him half of the estate. We know what he does with it. He runs off. He squanders it in wild living uh, we, with prostitutes and um, uh, drinking and so forth. And we know that because the elder brother later informs us of that, that <laughs> that's what he did with the money, because that's the elder brother's heart. Um, but the, the younger brother goes off, squanders everything, and he finds himself competing with pigs for food. And this thought hits him, well, my dad, had, you know, even his hired servants are eating better than this, so I'll go back and get a job with my dad. Well, he comes back, and... As the father sees him in a distance, the text tells us that he runs to him, embraces him, 
and kisses him much. And he restores him into relationship with a huge banquet, a party, where there's feasting on the fattened calf. And there's dancing. And the father gives him a robe and a ring and sandals. The point is obvious. If you're in the far country, if you've squandered the wealth of God, if you think you're too far away, you're never too far away. Come home because the Father has been opposing you by giving you what you wanted so that you can taste the emptiness of it and come home. Not taste the emptiness of it and say, I've gone too far, but taste the emptiness of it and, and realize that the greatest reality, and that is I could never run too far from the love of God. But then there's the elder brother. And the elder brother hears all this partying. And as he approaches, he asks, what is going on? And he's told, well, your brother who was lost has come home. And resentment wells up in his heart. And anger wells up in his heart. Why is that? It's because the, younger, the elder brother, excuse me, had an idea of how life should be. This is how life should work to a religious person. I do good. I go to church. I say my prayers. I read the Bible. I teach Sunday school. I serve in the choir. I'm a deacon. I'm an elder. I get married. I have two and a half children. I do well in business. I keep my life straight. And then God blesses me. That's the contract. But that's not how God works. Look at Ecclesiastes 7. I told you we'd get there eventually. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. And a little intro into Ecclesiastes. Solomon is telling us what life looks like under the sun. You see that phrase from verse 1 in Ecclesiastes 1 all throughout the book, under the sun. You hear it over and over and over again. And what he's telling us is, if there is nothing above the sun, if there's no God, this is how life is. This is how it seems. This is how it feels. Well, here it is. Verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. That destructs the very system of belief of a religious person. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness, doing, living righteously in the sight of his community, and suffering and going unnoticed. All the while, a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Solomon says, if your hope is in doing good, And expecting the God of heaven and earth to look down and start applauding because of your goodness, you're in deep trouble. (laughs) Because you're going to get to the end of that and realize that your goodness will not save you. He goes on, listen to this advice in 16. Don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? In other words, why pour your life into this if God is not going to pay attention to you? If this system doesn't work, then why believe it? Wow. 
we see that that was the system the elder brother was believing because when his plan of life, I do good and the father gives me half of the estate and I take over one day because I'm the man, I'm much better than my brother. Just look at him. His life's a mess. But when his brother comes home and he gets uh, the robe, the ring, the sandals, the fattened calf, whose robe, ring, sandals, fattened calf were those? (laughs) The elder brother's. The younger brother had already received his half, so now the father's dipping into his half. See, the, the elder brother has a high sense of justice, what other people deserve, what ought to be, but a very low sense of justice of what he deserves. And the problem with that is you can't, you can't love people when that's your heart. You're very critical. Uh, You're very demanding. You get a lot done, and that's the problem with this whole arrangement because it's hard not to promote the elder brother. It's very hard not to make the elder brother an officer in the church because he works so hard. He does so much. You see it? It's very hard to oppose a man who wants to go to seminary and enter the ministry because he wants to go to seminary. He wants to be in the ministry. It wasn't a problem with Jesus at all. I mean, Jesus leveled his most critical indictments upon the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The elder brother did not understand the concept of grace much, much less his need for it. And that's a problem. <laughs> I mean, that is a problem. We use religious performance to insulate ourselves from the truth about our hearts. And we can go a lifetime doing it, but it takes a lot of work because God opposes the proud. Let me go back to my story a little bit. He opposes the proud, but he loves the humble, dependent, and broken. That's what Peter says. He gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, it's interesting that there are very few broken people that broke themselves. God opposes us and breaks us that we might drink in his grace. It's a big part of my story. Um, What's it like to be married to the elder brother? Yeah, you'll have to ask my wife that question. Um, About 14 years into marriage, um, she could tell you very specifically what it was like to be married to an elder brother. You see, after going to seminary, um, I entered the ministry, and my heart was still feasting off of the affirmation of ministry. Um, It was still feasting off of the acclaim, the attention, okay? And really almost this intimate relationship that I had with ministry. And so because that was my idol, um, my wife and my children had to play a certain role in that. You see, it became their job description to, at the very least, not make me look bad. 
but at the very best, to make me look good. So I don't care, if, if the, unless the children are dying, they're going to be at church, okay? <laughs> unless you're dying, you're going to be at church, okay? Well, after about 14 years, um, God used um, the two-by-four of my wife's words uh, to wake me up. She basically said, I, I've had enough. And for a self-righteous man, that was a wake-up call. Uh, and that was probably God's grace in the sweetest way it could come to me. <laughs> uh, because what I was hearing finally was, there is something wrong with my system. Because this, this is not a product of living for Jesus. For a long time, I thought, she just doesn't love Jesus as much as I do. Ooh. For a long time, I thought, my children need to love Jesus as much as I do. And in that, then that moment, I realized, I didn't love Jesus. I was using him. I was using him for me and my reputation. <clears throat> That's what the elder brother need, needed. It's what we all need. Because religion produces the meanest of people. Um, why is it? I often ask myself this question. I'm a Memphian. And, and believe me, whenever it's so, it's almost, I don't know, there's just some aspect of humiliation. When I, when I stand in front of a group like this and you're told I'm planning a multi-ethnic church and I want to see the classes come together and all that. You know, it sounds like, I, I think I know what it must sound like, you know, to some of us. There's got to be just kind of a strain of, of self-righteousness. <laughs> I mean, I don't know any other way to say it, you know. Um, that the way we've always done church is not good enough, and we've got to go off and start this different kind of church. And what, you know, I mean, I get that. I really do. Because what's crazy about God, and I really believe he has the best sense of humor than all of us, is that I'm one of us. I mean, I grew up in East Memphis. I went to Christian Brothers High School. I, I get us because I'm us, okay? Um, but what God has begun to show me, I think, in just the brokenness of my own life, is that I could have gone all the way to the end with anything but Jesus as my righteousness. And that scares me to death. It scares me for us. Um, it frightens me. I'm working through the prophets again. And I'm hearing the voice of the prophets so loudly. And the voice of the prophets is not, those voices are not to the world. They're to God's people who have strayed from the truth and don't know it and believe with everything in their being that they are living for God. So why a church like this? Well, how have we not moved into, why aren't all churches like the one we're seeking to plant downtown? If you look at the New Testament, it seems as if the major message of this gospel was there's neither Jew nor Greek. I mean, this message of the gospel, the person of Christ, it's so astounding. 
It's so above any message of this world. It has so much power that it breaks down the barrier between Jew and Greek. And in that culture, Paul was saying something. He was saying something deep and profound. He was saying there is neither African American nor white in Memphis. There is neither African American nor white, Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is, there's no distinction between my new friend Ray Ray, who's been in jail, who has, has done the evils of writing bad checks, stealing other people's identities. Don't you hate those people? I mean, seriously, if you found out today that somebody had stolen your identity and they were out using, you know, your credit card and your your checking account, what would your heart do? This is my new friend. Doesn't have a job right now. Doesn't have an education. Dealt drugs for years. This is my new friend right now. Isn't that bizarre? That's crazy to me. The only thing he and I have in common is the person of Jesus Christ. And it scares me to death. Every time I'm with him, I'm scared to death. I don't know what to say half the time. You know, I'm always worried about offending him. And yet, we're growing closer not further apart because we're in relationship around the person of Jesus. Unbelievable. You see, this gospel has everything to do with how we do church and who we love. It is the power to love because Jesus is our freedom. Look at, look at Romans 5. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, that is amazing. What Paul is saying is, here's the distinction between religion, religious performance, which Paul knew also well, and the gospel, justified through faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came. He lived under the law for us. He performed for us. He did all of the things that God requires perfectly. And then He went to the cross and He was condemned for our sin. And through faith, I receive credit for His performance under the law and He receives credit for my performance under the law. (laughs) And therefore now, Paul later says in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That's what Paul's saying. Through faith, not through working. I don't have to be mean. I don't have to judge people. I, I, I can see a community where Jesus really is the hero and we are drawn by faith into him, but also to each other. Because the commonality we all have 
that we are sinners. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. That's what Paul is saying. And notice in verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Think about the elder brother. Was he rejoicing in his sufferings? I'm losing. My father is giving away part of my inheritance. I mean, some of us would want to hire a lawyer. (laughs) I mean, seriously. He already got his half. I mean, it is just for me to have my half. What are you doing, Father? We're going to court. I mean, do you see it? I mean, it's that serious, folks. I've actually had this happen to me. Uh, family member died. I knew what was in the will for me, and what was in the will for me was given to somebody else in my family. I'm still not over it. Is there any lawyers in the room? I need to. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, isn't that interesting what the gospel does? And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. Like, the more you pour on us as believers when Jesus is everything to us, is it just drives us closer to Jesus. I mean, that's the freedom that I have now in Christ, and not all the time by any stretch of the imagination, because I, like John Newton, feel my heart every day moving toward the dependence on the covenant of works as opposed to grace. Believe me. But over this last year, I could just list, starting with you know, one of my daughters being in a wreck, totaling her car, uninsured motorist, 15-year-old kid, you know, uh, she's still in physical therapy to my herniated disc. Uh, the first week I was here, that, that was uh, the second week I was here, that was the first week, the wreck. The second week, herniated disc, six weeks incapacitated, surgery, our house burning, losing everything we had, rent of, you know, I mean, I could just... I was audited by the IRS. I mean, I could just, this has been 14 months of suffering, I'm telling you, you know, trying to find an African-American co-part, making a plan for the church, being denied that. To the, I mean, unbelievable year. And yet, what in the, in the best moments, what I'm seeing in my heart is that all I have is Jesus. And that's all I need. I mean, in those moments where God is so gracious to open my heart and see, Richard, be still and know that I am God. I mean, you can't do anything to a Christian. When we're loving Jesus, when he is our everything, you can't do anything to us. Because our suffering is just going to produce hope. I want heaven so bad right now. I want Jesus to come back so bad right now. That's what happens to a believer is it makes us more, it drives us deeper in our faith. I don't think I hadn't been mad at God at times. First thing I I, I just, I screamed in the car, literally, it's embarrassing. When I got the call that my house was on fire, I got in the car and I literally started screaming, God, what are you doing? I can't take anymore. You know. True spirituality is found in relationship with God. How beautiful is that? What has God called us to as men? But to draw near to him in faith, to let him dissect the sins of our hearts, 
in relationship with him and others and to drink in his grace in the face of repentance. I mean, that's what he's called us to. That's freedom. And that's different from this system of the law over here. Having to look right, having to be right, because that feels so alone. You know, needing to be in control all the time or letting the sovereign God of heaven and earth control. That's his job. And it's not your job, it's his job. There's a freedom in saying, okay, okay, I get it, I give up. I'm yours and you're mine. I was uh, running, I think Saturday, and I was in a running store yesterday or the day before, I think it was the day before, and one of the guys there said, man, this summer has just been great. You know, it's been, I think it's been cooler in Memphis to, to train this summer. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm just back from Colorado. You know, it's when it's 80 degrees at 630 in the morning and about 90% humidity, there's nothing cool about that. You know, it is, it is murder, okay? But I was out for a run, and downtown, I think it's in front of City Hall, there are these fountains that, that this water that shoots out of the ground, you know, and, and you can walk around in it, play in it. Well, I'm out for a run, and that was going to be about mile seven. And all I could think of was just get to the water, you know, just get to the water. And as soon as I get there, I mean, I am just, I'm putting my head over one of those things, you know. Here's the thing about thirst. When you're really thirsty, you don't do tests on what's in the water, you know. <laughs> you, you don't care, you know. You're in the water, all right. But what, what's interesting about that and what I love about that is that that is a meeting place downtown, mostly for homeless people, <laughs> African-American, white. I, I've seen a mom and her infant baby there early in the morning, having slept there on the park bench all night. The water, when you're thirsty, is the place that unites. Jesus is the living water. I mean, there it is. <laughs> when thirsty people recognize they're thirsty and water is offered, they don't look around to see what other people are wearing that are drinking that water too. It's only when we're not really that thirsty and we, we start thinking, now, I'm only a bottled water kind of guy because it's just not really good. You know, Perrier, that's my brand. You know, when you're thirsty, you don't care. <laughs> but in Christ, we have the living water. And so do you see how really this gospel is absolutely mandatory for community to happen at Second Pres or the church that we're having starting downtown or anywhere in life? Unless you understand how deeply thirsty you are by holding your heart up to the law and letting it just judge you. You know, not not be a ladder that you feel good before God, because to do that, you've got to lower its expectations. And that's why Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, you know, he's saying, look, this is how you use the law, not to feel good about yourself, but to be humbled. If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. You've heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. But I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you're you're guilty of judgment. You know. 
The law is there to drive us, to show us we are thirsty and we didn't even know it. And we're looking to work, we're looking to relationship, we're looking to sex, we're looking to hobbies, we're looking to fun, we're looking to church, we're looking to our performance, we're looking to anything and everything but Jesus. But Jesus is held out. And he says, drink in me. When you're drinking in Jesus, all of a sudden, things that you thought mattered so much don't matter. And community can begin to happen. And friendships and relationships with people you, that are absolutely going to surprise you can happen. And even a church like we're talking about can happen, but only if Jesus is the only thing. <laughs> if he is the only righteousness the only hope, and the only thing being offered, the only one being offered. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel. Uh, every time I preach it, I, there's something in the back of my mind saying, can it really still be true? <laughs> it's just too good to be true. It's just too astounding. Freedom like that, letting go of all the things we press our lives into, just scares us to death. But, Father, we thank you that it's true because your son came. Your son came to this earth and lived under the law and died in our place that we might be called sons of God, that we might be delighted in by you, that you might dance over us right now. That, ah, oh, that would just be, um, that would be such false theology if you hadn't said it. But you are dancing over us because we are clothed in the work of your son. All of his beauty, all of his righteousness, all of his goodness. Expose our pride this morning, O oh God, and drive us deep into Jesus. May he be our only trust. May we let go of all the things we press our lives into. And may you, like the skillful surgeon you are, expose those things if we are blind to them. And grant us the, the beauty of faith, the power of faith to believe in the perfection of Jesus for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.